downside of putting the water up here ahead of time is that I didn't have any before I walked up. Um, but about that psalm, I wonder if when we read that, it should come across a little more like this. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me to sit in darkness like those long dead. And therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done, and I ponder the works of your hands. But I stretch out my hands to you, for my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Psalms we love to sing, eh? To be fair to Beth, I told her she could read it a little bit flatter, because I wanted to draw that contrast. Um, because I want to know how often, when we come to the Psalms, do we just sort of read them? And read them as if they are expressions of fact. But the power of Psalms is often not in their expression of facts, but in their ability to help us to feel, for a guide to our emotions. And yes, this is not the most cheerful Psalm, which makes sense since we are considering Psalms of Lament this month. It is not structurally or linguistically complicated. There is one minor challenge in translation that I'm not going to get into. Look at the footnotes if you're curious. And there's no unusual vocabulary. If there is anything particularly profound about this psalm, I think it's in its simplicity. What you see is what you get. But it does ask us to feel something very weighty. We are invited to feel the depths of David's pain. We have discussed how there are psalms on both ends of the continuum between praise and lament. We have Psalm 150 on one side as an example of joyful praise. And Psalm 88 on the very other end, a deep lament devoid of much hope. And while Psalm 143 is not quite as dark as Psalm 88, it's probably in the top five or bottom five. Not sure which way you want to look at that. This is a different type of lament than what we've considered so far. Two weeks ago, Darren helped us consider a plea for justice and an expression of hopeful expectation that God would bring justice. And last week, Brad led us through a corporate lament that expressed grief at the wickedness of the world around us. I get to take you on a guided tour of dealing with deep and persistent suffering. And while it might seem like I should make some sort of joke here about Darren pawning off the emotionally taxing sermon on me, I picked this one. This is my fault. Because if we are considering how the book of Psalms contains guidance on how to deal with the full range of human emotions, then it seemed right to pick the psalm that best fit where I'm at and really have been for some time. In a lot of ways, I don't feel qualified to be preaching on anything right now. But if there is one thing, it is this topic. Father, I am aware of my weakness this morning. And I'm aware that this is a weighty and heavy topic. I feel the need to 
as you command to preach the whole counsel of God, to not hold back what you're saying to us this morning. And I simultaneously am aware that there are those who may be hurting already, and for this, and that this could become an added burden. I pray that you would not break a bruised reed, that you would not quench a smoldering wick through my words this morning, but that you would give strength to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look again at Psalm 143 now and consider the first thing that we need to do in our suffering is approach our God. Before we even consider how we should approach our suffering, we first need to know who we are. This is a psalm by David. It is a psalm for the covenant people of God. It was valid for David to pray this way, and it was added to the Bible as an example for the Jews to pray to God. How much more, then, should it be a psalm that we as Christians can turn to? We are those who have experienced God's mercy. We are those who have been adopted as children of the living God. We are those who can call God our Father. And so, if David can start his lament by calling out to God, we can begin ours as well, saying, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. As David calls out to God, he leans in to God's mercy. And he does that so quickly, it's in verse 2. David is both drawing near to God and and is conscious of a barrier between himself and God. He wants rescue from an unrighteous enemy, but he knows that he himself isn't, is not completely righteous. And so he appeals to God's mercy and grace. And this is an idea that as Christians should not be unfamiliar to us. Paul even alludes to this verse in Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable by God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And that's what we saw in Psalm 143, that no human being will be justified in his sight. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. David knew that in part. He was one of those that in God's divine forbearance, his sins had been passed over, even though he did not yet know Jesus. But for those of us who have turned to Jesus for salvation, we have direct access to the Father. David and us, we are not just calling out to a supernatural but impersonal force. Nor are we calling out to a supreme supreme but disinterested being. No, we are calling on our God. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who redeemed a people for himself who redeemed us through Christ. We are God's people, and we have been invited to approach his throne. We see this idea again when Jesus' disciples ask how they ought to pray. He begins by telling them to pray, Our Father, 
who art in heaven. And sometimes when we're struggling, we want to pray to God, but we also feel our unworthiness, and so we stay distant. But Jesus and David are both telling us that wall between us and God is not real. We can draw near. Sometimes that isn't our problem. We aren't afraid of approaching God, but yet we try to solve our problems on our own without even going to him in prayer. Or we complain to anyone and everyone, except we never take our complaints to God. It's like that internet meme of an old man yelling at a cloud. And while going outside and yelling at a cloud might feel good in the moment, it ultimately accomplishes nothing, doesn't it? The cloud doesn't care. Problems are still there when you go back inside, and if you were yelling at clouds this week, you might have gotten frostbite. If we truly want help, we need to approach our God in prayer. And if you find it hard to pray when you're suffering, I am right there with you. I often don't know what to pray or how to pray or sometimes just those are at the times when I need to be praying the most and the words don't come. But here's the thing. That's not really the point. We don't need fancy words or even really any words. Romans 8 again. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You don't need words, but you do need to come before God. And if you do want words, something I have found really helpful in times when I'm struggling to pray is to use the prayers of others. Get a copy of the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers, or a devotional that includes some prayers. Or I regularly use a book, which Brad read from this morning um, when he was praying, called Be Thou My Vision. It's a daily liturgy that takes five to ten minutes to go through, plus a slot for Bible reading. But if you do that, don't just read the prayers. Make them your own as much as you can. Of course, David also gives us more words in this psalm that might tell us how we should pray. Let's consider, then, that when we approach our God, we need to admit our brokenness. Looking again at verses 3 and 4. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart is appalled. David is incredibly vulnerable here in this moment. And not just in the words that he's speaking, but in the reality that's behind those words. Consider what he says. The enemy has pursued my soul. There is some outside person or force pursuing David. We don't know the exact context of this psalm, but David's life is threatened. He has crushed my life to the ground. David's enemy is not just chasing him, but has had a real impact on his quality of life. The result is that he has made me to sit in darkness like those long dead. Not just dead, long dead. He goes on to say, my spirit faints within me. My heart is appalled. And maybe you don't have a particular person coming after you, but is there any sort of situation in your life, past or present, that has felt like this? Like something is just against you, and it's relentless, it won't give up, it's just left you beat up, or all you want to do is curl up on the couch and cry? or you don't want to get out of bed in the morning? 
Or maybe you never made it from the couch to the bed last night. Have you felt that? I know some of you have. But if, for the rest of us, if that's still beyond our imagination, we have the imagination of J.R.R. Tolkien to help us. You thought you were getting away from Lord of the Rings illustrations when Darren took a day off. But just to be different, I will quote from the books. Had to be different. But isn't this sort of like the experience of Frodo in the entire trilogy? He inherits the One Ring at the beginning of the book, and then is soon literally pursued across the countryside by a group of undead spirits who want to reclaim the ring for their evil master. But the longer Frodo carries this thing, the heavier the burden of it becomes. Near the end of his quest, Sam asks if he can remember a moment when they were camping in the sunlight eating rabbits. Frodo says, no, I'm afraid not, Sam. At least, I know that such things happened, but I cannot see them. No taste of food, no feel of water, no sound of wind, no memory of tree or grass or flower, no image of moon or star are left to me. I am naked in the dark, Sam. I think Frodo would have understood what David is saying in this psalm. Do we? But David continues. He tells us that he remembers God's prior works. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. David has not ignored what God has done. He is actually probably very aware of the mighty works God has done in the past. Things such as the exodus from Egypt or the conquest of the promised land. Even David's own victory of Goliath. Um, I hope he remembers that one. Um, he spends time meditating on those and pondering them. And at least when I'm reading that, I start to feel an element of hope for David, that his pain is being forced back. But then when I read verse 6, I see that David's once again stretching out his hands, that he still feels dry. David's pursued God, but it has not yet led him to a state where everything is better. But I do think there is something for us to take away there. And while this psalm is primarily calling us to believe something, not to do something, and while I did just note that David's problems are not solved, I think the way he goes about pursuing God is illustrative for us. He looks backwards. He considers who God is and what he has done. And so if we want to find God when things aren't going well, turn to our Bibles. This is how we know what God has done. And trust me, I know that this is sometimes an incredibly hard thing to do, in the midst of our suffering. If you're there right now, I'm not asking you to pick up your Bible and read and just read until the suffering goes away. But do open it and read what you can. Small morsels are better than nothing when you're starving. The rest of us, let's be reading our Bibles now. Let's meditate on, ponder what you read. Read it widely to get the big picture of what God has done throughout history and read it deeply in places to find its hidden gems. Do this so that when times of suffering come, you're prepared with your sword and your armor ready. But I am talking about suffering like we should expect it. Should we? Does our knowledge and union with Christ protect us in a way that David didn't get to enjoy? I don't think so. 
In fact, I'd argue that our union with Christ means that we are more likely to suffer in this life. Consider that Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Identifying with Christ means that the world will hate us because it hates him. Or, that's not morbid enough, have you ever really thought about the command to take up your cross and follow me? Do you realize that Jesus is saying to pick up the instrument of your own demise and carry it after him? Or have you considered that in Hebrews 11, that great list of those faithful to God, that the trait common to most of those people is that they suffered? I've been thinking about that passage in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe this week, uh, the passage where the children learn that Aslan is a lion. Um, if you aren't familiar with the book, um, it is written as an allegory where Aslan is representing Christ. And Susan asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I think most of us have heard or read that many times. Usually when we want to illustrate the combination of God's otherness from us and God's goodness. But how often do we dare to dwell on the ways in which God is not safe? And I want us not to make a mistake. If we are truly in Christ, there is no safer place for our eternal souls than near to him. But do we confuse our eternal safety with our earthly comfort? We cannot serve two masters. He who would find his life must lose it. And one might reply that God is loving. And you are right. But he gets to define the terms of that love. Consider a familiar passage. John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Okay, maybe that was a little bit less familiar than you were expecting because I use the Christian Standard Bible's translation instead of the ESV that we use. And I use that here because I want us to at least consider that the word so in there might mean something closer to thus or in this way, then the implied way that we tend to translate it is God loved the world so much. Instead, I think it's describing how God has loved the world. Compare that with another of John's writings in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and became the propitiation for our sins. Do you see this? God is love. But the manner that God most displays his love for us is not in keeping us from suffering, 
but by suffering in our place that we might find true life in him. I was reminded of this during that, during the hymn. Um, when through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And the thing about it is, is that it says the flame shall not hurt you in the hymn. But if we are even a little bit attached to this world, to our sin, as that dies, it will hurt. But it's good. He's the king. And again, I know some of you are in a place of ongoing suffering. And if you're at all like me, you might have heard some of that and said to yourself, oh, I see my problem. I'm not suffering in the right way. And maybe it sounds a little silly when I say it out loud like that. At least it sounds silly to me. But that's where I tend to go when I hear a sermon like this, is I go, oh, I'm just not suffering as well as I could be. And if I suffered better, then things would be better and it wouldn't hurt so much. But that's, I don't think, what's going on here. Don't hear me say that you're doing suffering wrong. I want us to hear that we need to be prepared but, and expect suffering, but mostly I want us all to hear, especially those who are in this place already, that what we're experiencing is not weird. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're suffering, I want you to hear that. We can rejoice that we share Christ's sufferings. When some of the disciples in Acts were beaten, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the dishonor of the name. Have you considered that you may be suffering simply because you have been counted worthy to do so? That one's a hard one for me to hear. It might actually be because God has counted me worthy. And I'm not saying that we should go out and find ways to suffer. Because they will come. Probably for all of us. Even if just in the slow decay of our bodies into death. When they come, we shouldn't be surprised. We're suffering, we can approach our God. We can let him take the burden of our sin and our suffering because he cares for us. Do you feel the weight of why we need this psalm, this particular psalm? Do you see that we need to recognize that David's sufferings are not just a thing for him in his time, but that they matter for us as well? I'm not done yet. I've still got half the psalm left. Don't worry. We're going to go that much quicker. Um, there's only one more thing I want us to consider as we approach our God 
admitting our brokenness. It's that not only are we broken, we are helpless to do anything about it. Yeah, you thought this was an encouraging sermon. David's act, and actually, hopefully that should be encouraging for us, but let's see why. David's actions so far have not solved his problem, as we've talked about. Let's hear the rest of his cry for help. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your spirit lead me on level ground. For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. For I am your servant. Do you notice that each pair of lines there is a request? And then a reason for that request? Mostly. It breaks down a little bit towards the end. But David is basically making a series of pleas to God. And then follows each by saying why God should respond to that particular plea. But I find even those requests that he makes to be interesting. Consider verses 7, 8, and 10. In those, his first plea is simply that God would answer him quickly. But there are six more pleas in those verses from 7 to 10. And five of them he makes are not about being rescued. They're about removing the darkness that stands between him and God. He says, hide not your face from me and let me hear of your steadfast love. He says, make me know the way I should go. Teach me to do your will and let your good spirit lead me. After all that David has expressed about his circumstances, he seems to be more concerned about the fact that he was spiritually unempty than about the danger to his life. It's only after making those requests that he finally says, deliver me from my enemies, preserve my life and bring my soul out of trouble. And look at the second half of those verses. Look at the reasons why David makes these requests. Each of those, each and every one of those reasons is an appeal to God's character and not to anything David has done. In you I trust. To you I lift up my soul. I have fled to you for refuge. You are my God. Even the statements, my spirit fails, and lest I be like those who go down to the pit, seem to be a recognition that God should not cut David off because God has previously promised not to. David recognizes that he can't fix his problems if God does not show up powerfully. And when he makes his final requests for deliverance, his strongest appeals are to the sake of God's name and God's righteousness. David's confidence does seem to be building as he makes these pleas and as he again meditates on God's righteousness and who God is. So much so that he finally expresses something resembling confidence that God will deliver him in verse 12. And even in that, though, it's a recognition of God's character, who God is. It's a recognition that God must be the one to act. Despite David's confidence, I think it's also worth noting that we don't know for sure how this story ends. The psalm ends here. 
we don't know the specific circumstances to look it up elsewhere in Scripture. We end with this feeling of unresolved. As I'm drawing this to a conclusion, there is one more thing I'd like to address. Um, although this psalm invites us to share in David's experience, it is an individual lament. It shows us how to process individual suffering. And some of us need that this morning. We're trying to figure out how to make sense of a situation that has brought us into a dark place that just doesn't seem to end. But I suspect most of you are not there today. And you do want to care for those who are. And while this psalm doesn't directly address that, if I think about what would I be asked after, it would be this. How do I help those who are suffering? And here's what I'd say. First, recognize your role is not to solve another person's problem. Maybe you can help with some tangible needs, but you need to recognize your helplessness as well. That's not just a thing for the one who is suffering. You can't solve the problem that only God can solve. Second, be aware that persistent suffering is inherently lonely. So many of the individual psalms of lament and express some degree of frustration that even the psalmist's closest friends have abandoned him. We don't see that in this one. But I think that is in part in all the others because while we're really good at responding to sudden problems as humans, we struggle when the problem lingers to stay engaged. For example, did you know that it has been almost two years since Russia invaded Ukraine? Today is day 698 of that war. I didn't know that, at least not before Thursday. I'm guessing that unless you have some sort of special or personal interest in this war, you didn't know what happened in the war earlier this week either, or last month. But for those first few weeks, didn't it seem like the entire nation was focused on it, like it was the center of every news story? And I think it's like that even when our friends are suffering, because at some point, it just becomes normal, and we don't even think about it anymore. And I kind of even don't even want to tell you all this because by encouraging you to become aware of someone else's pain, I worry that it'll encourage us to press in to other people who are suffering. And at some point, life will happen to us again. We'll move on. And there might be even even worse sense of abandonment for the person who is suffering. I said earlier that we aren't meant to find ways to suffer for the sake of suffering, but I wonder if this might be one exception that in choosing to care for a suffering friend, we need to realize that we are choosing to take on some of that burden. Just be careful that when you've helped someone to relieve that sense of burden a little bit, that you don't drop it back upon them. And how best to share this burden? I will give you this paradoxical advice. Leave space while being present. If you leave too much space, you aren't present. But the sufferer does need space to process their grief, and they need space for God to work. Remember that bit about being helpless. Be like Job's friends when they first show up. But don't be like Job's friends and open your mouth a week later just because things got uncomfortable for you. Don't place demands upon the person to process their suffering in any amount of time or in any specific way. Um, I'm also going to throw out that even a question can sometimes feel like a demand because it's asking for an answer. 
Sometimes if you ask me how I'm doing, I don't know. And now I feel like I have to give you an answer. And then I'm kind of annoyed with myself because I know that you're trying to help me and that you care. But right now, so I don't hate you, but I really just don't want to talk to you right now. Um, don't break bruised reeds. Don't quench smoldering wicks. But do try to help your friend to remember, to meditate, to ponder, and to stretch out to God, just as we've seen in Psalm 143. I'd even say when the opportunity arises, pray with your friend and not just for him. Let her hear your words as you pray to God, because she just might not have her own. To wrap up, if you are suffering, I don't really have things for you to do. I want you to hear that God is there and for you, even when it doesn't seem like it. But otherwise, you have enough of a burden without me adding anything to it. I want you to know that even in your brokenness and your helplessness, you can approach God. You can approach him as, his fa as your father, acknowledging your pain while trusting in his goodness. And if you're not suffering and you are close to someone who is, be present, but leave space. Be ready to stay present for a long time. And as we go today, I'd encourage us all not to move on from David's suffering too quickly. I think it's intentional that the psalm ends a little bit ambiguous like that. So I'm leaving you a little bit hanging too. Don't let the fact that you know the end of the story lead you to conclude that you know how this chapter in your life or your friend's life will end. It's okay to recognize that we are in the middle of an uncomfortable or painful chapter. And we can come to God about that. I can't tell you that things will be better because you heard this sermon. In fact, that's probably unlikely. I can't tell you that they will be better when you wake up tomorrow, or even that they will be better anytime soon. I can tell you that God is good. He's the king. Father, I just simply ask that you would help us to suffer well when we do. That you would not hide your face from us for too long. That you would help us to see you. Help us to desire your face more than our comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.